Our text this morning is Matthew 9, 35 through 38, but we're going to look at Romans 15 first, just a few verses. Um, you could say that our we've got a long introduction, uh, or there's a sermon within the sermon. And so it, it might be a little bit longer than normal. But I have good news. Um, as we did last Sunday evening when we had fellowship and, and did not have evening service, we'll, we'll do the same again this evening. Um, and potentially look at doing that every month. It's a long day. It's a lot of, um, a lot of fellowship, a lot of preparation, a lot of cleaning. And so it, there's multiple reasons why us breaking and not having evening service on the last Sunday of the month could be beneficial to us. Uh, be praying about it, and we'll, we will talk through that at um, our members' meeting n- next week. Um, and so with that in mind, I did prepare just a little bit longer sermon, just so you make sure you can get, you know, what, what, what you need. Um, but... We're, we're, we're getting to this transition in Matthew 9 where it seems as if Jesus' ministry is about to become more public, at least from the way Matthew's writing it. I'm sure it was very public, but it seems as if he's unfolding a little bit more. He's giving us a little bit extra. Let me just say. Um, and so there's something that I want to to make sure we understand as we go into this, these few verses of 35, 36, 37, and 38, as we end Matthew 9, and the, the, the reality, the truth that I want to express to you comes out of Romans, 5, or Romans 15. Uh, so let me read these few verses. Romans 15, verse 4 to 13. Romans 15, beginning in verse 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Verse 8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the uncircumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol Him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come even He who arises to rule the Gentiles, in Him will the Gentiles hope. 13. 
May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Pray with me just quickly. Father, open up the, the truth of your word to our hearts. Open up the eyes of our hearts that we might see and know for the sake of praise and glory unto your name. Amen. Okay, so the thing I want to touch on before we look and truly get into Matthew 9 is a view of Christianity that we have sort of, I don't want to say inherited, maybe taken on over the last 200 years, uh, especially a type of Christianity that has been shaped by our country, the founding of America. Uh, and that, I, I, I want to call it an individualistic view of Christianity, an individual take on Christ. Um, individualism was a key factor in the founding of our country and its success. When you think of um, individualism, it's less about the collective more about individual liberties, responsibilities, and pursuits. And if you think about it, out of that came that which drove America to what it was and what it still is. It drove the American dream, which had become the backbone of this country. It's still alive today, that, that backbone, that, that emphasis on I will take care of mine, but when you think about it like a, a, a racehorse who wears blinders, if you've seen racehorses, sometimes they put blinders on them, right? And they're running an individual race. Even though there might be 9, 10, 12, 14 horses, they've got blinders on and they're running a race with blinders hoping not to see other horses or those beside them so that they would run their race and finish it not concerned about what is going around them. They want to keep focus on myself, my race, my goal, my direction, my faith. I can make it to the end. I can win the race. That mindset of taking individual responsibility and looking for your individual goals and, and path, is it has its place but it doesn't necessarily fit well with Christianity. Um, that thinking has created such a successful country, culture, economy, but it has had a bit of a negative influence on the church, the Christian church. We've made faith so individualistic that we made it of a personal matter. An individualistic endeavor. Hence terms you might even hear from politicians around this time of the year. My faith, my belief, my religion, I keep it separate. Or we as people who walk around the public square don't get into conversations because I have my faith, they have their faith. That way of thinking has 
not just hindered the way we live, but it's actually hindered the way we read our Bibles. And this is I'm really starting to get into the crux of the point. The individualistic way of the way we study God and theology, the way we think about God, and specifically about how God engages with mankind. We, we can fall into an individualistic mindset, a Christian with blinders that would say, Christ died for me, which is true. We say, I have accepted Him, which is true. He tells me how to live, which again is true. I look to the Bible to find my direction, my motivation, and maybe even some correction. But that way of viewing Christianity, that way of approaching the Scriptures, will affect how you can be obedient as a Christian. Now, we could go in a direction of talking about church fellowship and membership and that's affected in a major way the individualistic idea that America and we have understood it. But that's not what I want to focus on this morning. But I want to focus on the negative effect individualism has had in the way we read our Bibles. With blinders on. A self-focused approach to Scripture. And what, th- what does that approach look like? That, that sort of looks like how a self-focused person would engage in a conversation with others. You, you've been in a conversation with somebody where no matter what is being said, whether it's about them, connected to them or not, they will tend to drive that conversation back towards something related to them. Or they'll be able to connect themselves always to the conversation and say, yes, but me, I want to be a part of this, or I want to be the discussion, the topic of the conversation. Or it could look like the type of person that always is trying to find an angle in a situation at home or at work that says, but wait, what's in it for me? That's a common individualistic approach to the Scriptures. How can I find myself here? What can I gain out of this? Where do I fit into what is being said in this passage. Now there are subtle, small, very subtle, yes, dangers to that approach to Scripture. What does God want to say to me? What has God done for me? What will God do for me? And here's the problem that that mindset creates. You become a limited Christian. When you have a me approach to Scripture, to studying the Bible, you will limit your knowledge. Why? Because much of the Bible isn't about you. Not that it isn't for you or helpful for to you. It very much so is. But if you approach, if you approach the Scriptures focused upon yourself and you read the Old Testament, it may be very hard for you to understand why you even have to read the Old Testament. Because there's, it's, it's a little bit harder to make a connection to you and what's going on in the Old Testament. That type of approach to Scripture will not only limit your knowledge, 
But because it limits your knowledge, it will limit your worship. Because you know less about Him whom you are to worship. You're, you, you know less about His plans and purposes. Your worship can only go as high as your understanding. In Sunday school, uh, Dan introduced us to a word. Um, I don't remember the full the full uh, word, but it was a compound word and started with ortho, right? And it's it's right. The idea of being straight or right. Um, we we have to understand if our if our thinking isn't right, if our belief, our faith, our our knowledge isn't right, our worship can't be right. Um, orthodoxy, knowing what's right about God, leads us to orthopraxy, which is right practice, which leads to orthopathy, which is right feeling and emotion. And we also can think of it in the sense of we talked a couple. Uh, I don't know how long ago in Sunday evening about doxology. Dox being glory and ology, the study. So doxology is a, is a, a study or a declaration of the glory of God. But that can only go as far and as high as your understanding as of theology. Your study and understanding of theo, which is God. When your understanding of God only touches his engagement with you as an individual, right? If you, you come at scripture, it's like, how, what am I, what is this? How does this help me? What, how, what does this affect me? What can I gain from this? How does God work through the gospel and Jesus towards me? When you, un, when you come to scripture and you only get an understanding of its engagement with you, you're only scratching the surface of God's engagement with the world, you, you're not realizing that he came to save the world. He's redeeming mankind. It's the redemption of fallen man. What in the world does that have to do with Matthew 9? If you approach Matthew 9, this passage in Matthew 9, and, in, and into chapter 10 too, well, well, the Gospels altogether, really, if you approach them with me only in mind, you will come short in understanding the main drive of, of this text, and that's the compassion of Christ. Our text reveals that the gospel of the kingdom is far greater than Jesus died for me. I'm, you might, I might take you back a bit. The gospel is greater than just understanding it personally. Okay? It shows, it, uh, this text, the compassion of Christ, it shows us that the compassion and mercy of God is greater than we can imagine. Our passage in Matthew today shows us God's steadfast love, not just to me, but, mo- but first and foremost, to Israel. And that should mean something to us if we understand the Old Testament, if we've taken the opportunity to search the scriptures. 
Our passage shows us that the gospel of the kingdom, as is stated, isn't just arbitrary good news that we take and scatter like birdseed, hoping someone will take it and be fed. But what this passage reveals about the gospel, it reveals God's faithfulness to his promises to his people. God has made promises and covenants. And you, in order to understand the glory and majesty and grace and mercy of God in you being saved, must also realize that he first and foremost kept his word, his faithfulness to Israel. And that is really what Romans 15 is trying to tell us. And we'll we'll come back to that in a minute. Our passage today uh, will show you that the gospel is bigger than our individual salvation. God, when you see that, you see that God is bigger than you realized. And you begin to see that Jesus' love and mercy and compassion is deeper and wider than you realized. It's not me deep. And where does, where should that lead you? That should lead you to greater and higher worship. So how do we make sense of this in our text today? Let's go back to Matthew 9. That there, there, well, is almost the complete introduction. What is Jesus proclaiming when he goes from city to village? Look at it. And Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Now, question, if someone, here's a question for you. If someone asked you, what is the gospel? Please explain it to me. And you did. And, and you, in your, best, in your best knowledge, gives your explanation to that person of what the gospel is. Here's the question I have for you. Do you think your explanation would match what Jesus proclaimed while he was alive? Here, like in Matthew 9. Think about that for a second. Like seriously, if you were to, if you needed to tell someone what the gospel is, Now, Jesus is preaching and proclaiming the gospel in all the places that he goes. Do you think yours would match up? Now, I'm not – this isn't a trick to say, do you know what the gospel is? This is actually us taking a step back, and I mentioned this last week and saying, okay, if we were to tell someone what the gospel is, we'd probably include things like cross, blood, sin, resurrection. We're in Matthew 9. We haven't got there yet. Right? But he's preaching and teaching the gospel of the kingdom throughout all these places. So what what do we have to understand here? Um, Jesus actually doesn't bring up anything close to probably what we would say. Now, mind you, your explanation wouldn't be wrong. I just want you to understand that it's not what Jesus would have said. He would not have said, you need to have your sins forgiven. I'm going to go die on the cross. 
for your sins. I'm going to be an atoning sacrifice. I'm going to raise from the dead, and you must have faith. He, he would not say that. It wasn't until Matthew 16 that he starts to hint to his disciples that this is what's going to happen. This is what, what he says to them in Matthew 17. From that time, Jesus begins to show. This is in Matthew 16. From that time, Jesus begins to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer, be killed, and be raised. And even so, we realize that his disciples didn't completely understand what he was talking about. So what good news might he be declaring to these Israelites as he goes from town to town, synagogue to synagogue? The answer is in verse 36. The gospel is in verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. But for you to get that and for you to fully understand that and not just because I have gone to that passage many times with an individualistic mindset and be like, I am harassed. I'm helpless. I'm distressed. I need the compassionate Jesus. And that's good, and that's true, and that's right. But that's not what's here in this passage. For you to fully understand the goodness and richness of verse 36, you must, as Paul said in Romans 15, be familiar what was written in former days. That's what he said. Things are written in former days for your good. What would be that for us? Old Testament, right? In verse 36, in this lived out understanding of the gospel, we see three things. Number one, language borrowed from the Old Testament. Meaning, if we'd read through Ezekiel once or twice and then we came to Matthew 9, we'd go, oh, that, that sounds familiar. There are some words in there that sounds like something out of Ezekiel. Number two, we would have confirmation of what was written in the Old Testament, specifically by the prophet Ezekiel concerning things about Israel. And number three, we would then realize that there is a beginning of the fulfillment of a messianic prophecy that Ezekiel was talking about. I don't, as I said all those three things, I want you to realize how rich that text is. How much I just told you. That there is conformity between the Old and the New Testament and we can see it because it sounds similar. And that the New Testament and what's written is confirming what was said in the Old and not just confirming, but a fulfillment of what was written specifically by Ezekiel, which we'll look at. Here in a minute. Now that concludes the introduction. And there are a few things I want us to see here, but also in Ezekiel. The first thing is the conditions of the crowd. Now everyone look at your Bible and look you look for your two words, that's that the two adjectives that show you the condition of the crowd. In mine, it's harassed and helpless. If you've got a KJV, it's um, 
fainted and scattered abroad. The NASB, which I also use, I use all three of those for preparation, is distressed and dispirited. That's the condition of the crowds that Jesus is speaking to. Now let's make sure we identify the crowds. Who are the crowds? It's the people of Israel, right? Okay. Harassed or fainted or distressed. Let's look at the first one together. This is really gruesome. That word means to skin. Like as if next month, come October and November, you're going to skin a deer. That's what that word means. But it was also used in early Greek language, or whatever, classic Greek or whatever, that they would use that term when someone was whipped so badly their skin was peeled. Harassed. Fainted. Distressed. It's quite the image. Jesus looks at the crowd of Israel and sees that. And then there's the word that's translated helpless. I think the best way, scattered. That Greek word gives this image of deliberately throwing, hurling, casting down. And we're going we're gonna to be thinking about herds and shepherds and sheep here in a minute. But think about it this way. What would happen if a coyote starts chasing a herd of something? It's the middle of the night, and a coyote gets in the middle of a herd. What does it do? It scatters them. Now, what do you think happens to the mindset of those individual animals as they're being scattered? They're no longer in their herd. They're going to be frantic. They're uh, the NASB says dispirited. I was like, it might be a little bit more stronger than that. The, the, the ESV says helpless. A herd, an animal, a herd mentality animal that is separated from its herd is helpless, distressed, or dispirited. I, living case in point. Yesterday, yeah, I didn't even think about this. We've got, we've got a, a, a filly and a little pony, and they're best buddies. And that horse left yesterday, and I tell you what, that pony would have chased that trailer down the road. And then as soon as it left, and we, I coaxed it back into the, into the gate, you should have heard him. So he, he had comfort within the herd. But then when he was scattered, when separated, helpless, dispirited, right? cast down Jesus sees Israel in these two ways what also happens when a predator uh, well I won't go there yet so what causes this condition of the people of Israel and the answer is at the end of verse 36 I, I think it's just the explanation he sees them harassed and helpless, faint and scattered abroad, like sheep without a shepherd. Which gets us to our second point. So first was the conditions of the crowd. Now we see uh, what brings about this condition of the crowd. And this is going to connect us to the Old Testament. This is where we have to 
remember the things of old, the things written of old. And the second point is the condition is the result or the consequences of bad leaders. Bad leaders. They're so bad they might as well not be there like sheep without a shepherd. But here's the thing about Israel. They've always had a shepherd. Now, you might think I'm meaning God, but I'm not quite. What I mean by that is from the beginning of Israel, when God called Abram, God has always made it a point to have a leader among his people. It was Abram in the beginning, and then Isaac, and then Jacob. But as Israel grew and they were brought out of Egypt, that leader was Moses, and then Moses appointed elders. And then after, in and among that time, God's giving them priests from the line of Aaron. And then later, as they get into the promised land, they get judges and prophets. And then what else? Kings. God has always seen fit. It's always been his plan to, to keep Israel from being in anarchy. They always needed a shepherd. And it took its it, it was manifested in all these different types of offices. Specifically, as we would come to know, the prophet, the priest, and the king. But we also know, as we've not neglected that which was written of old, the Old Testament, that Israel had always had difficulties with those leaders, with those shepherds. And then you might begin to ask the question, as I did as I was thinking through this, the whole chicken and the egg dilemma. Is it Israel or is it their leaders? Is Israel having such a hard time even with God because of the way they are led? Or are they led in such poor ways because the way Israel is acting or behaving? Now, the Bible presents it as both. Uh, The great Protestant reformer John Calvin writes in his Institutes, he makes this statement. It's a biblical statement. And I want to show you a a quick passage to affirm it. They who rule unjustly and incompetently have been raised up by him, God, to punish the wickedness of the people. Now, he, he, he got that from the scriptures. Let me read it again. They who rule unjustly, the leaders, the bad leaders, they who rule unjustly and incompetently, have been raised up by God to punish the wickedness of the people, and in this case, Israel. And then he says, a wicked king is the Lord's wrath upon the earth. And we could make a third sermon and start making that very current in our day, in our time. And it doesn't matter if they've got a D or an R next to their name. Reference passage is Isaiah 3.4. Let me just read it short. And Isaiah chapter 3 is a section on God's judgment towards Judah and Jerusalem. And he says this, I will make boys their princes 
and infants shall rule over them. That's in the context of God's judging Israel's behavior, the people's behavior. But the Bible also presents the truth that bad leaders hurt and harm. They harass and they scatter God's sheep. Bad leaders will do bad things. As much as that first principle applies and was true for Israel, so is this one. That's where we get to Ezekiel 34. Let's go to Ezekiel 34. So if you go to Psalms and then turn to the right, you go past Proverbs, you go past Isaiah, you go past Jeremiah, Lamentations, and you get to Ezekiel. Ezekiel, a major prophet. Chapter 34. Chapter 34, we get to know a little bit about Israel's leaders. Chapter 34 gives us great clarity about the harm done to Israel by their leaders. Let's read through this. Verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Okay, let's make one note that we should probably clarify. Prophecy, or to prophesy, doesn't necessarily mean to speak about the future. The Hebrew word for prophecy just means to speak. A prophet, like Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Jonah spoke the words of God as directed by God. Not necessarily about things to come. While future prophecy did mingle in, and a lot, but there's also a lot of prophecy that was just to be spoken. The word of God to be spoke from the prophet to the people. Whether it be Israel or Nineveh. Right? So, God's got a word from from him through Ezekiel to the shepherds of Israel. Now, he doesn't define shepherds, whether it be prophets, priests, kings, judges, or whatever. So what we're seeing are the people who are to care for Israel. The stewards, as we looked at in Titus 1 this morning. Right? This is for them. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Ah! Shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones. But you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up. The strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness, you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all of the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search Or seek for them. So, verses 1 through 7, 
God says to the shepherds of Israel, you have not done your job as appointed by me. You have not shepherded my flock. Not only have you not fed my flock, you're feeding on my flock. Not only have you not carried, cared for the wicked of my, the weak of my flock, you've preyed on the weak in my flock. In your lack of shepherding, God says, my sheep are scattered. And now they are prey to the wild beast. They wander, wander, with an A. They're alone. No one is seeking after them, as a good shepherd should do. Now look at verse 7. God introduces here in 7 through 10 his response, which can be summarized in verse 10. Let's just go ahead and read all of them with an emphasis on verse 10. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts since there was no shepherd. And because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Verse 10. Thus says the Lord God, behold. So here is God's response to the lack of shepherding, the poor, bad leadership of the shepherds of Israel. Behold, I am against the shepherds. There's judgment. I will require my sheep at their hands. Sounds a lot like I'll give an account for the pastors, the elders that we looked at this morning. I will put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. Now, verse 11 through 16, Ezekiel gives more detail of what God is going to do, how he's going to respond. Let's look at it. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, so what's he going to do? I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. Remember, we're talking about Israel. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among the sheep that have been what? Scattered. So I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. I will feed them on, a mount, on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in the inhabited places of the country. Notice he's talking about Israel as they are sheep and as he is a shepherd. Because he, like, he says, I will feed them on the mountains and, they will, and by the ravines and they will inhabit places of, of the country. That's like sheep grazing. Psalm 23, that's why we read that to, for our call to worship, right? He leads me to the, uh, He leads me beside still waters, and the thing about grazing in green pastures, I've completely lost it. Verse 14, I will feed them with good pasture. There it is. And on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land. Psalm 23. And on rich pastures they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. Verse 15. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. And I myself will make them lie down. 
in green pastures, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. Hear that. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. He says, you did not do the job. I'll do the job. I will shepherd my flock. I will seek out. I will seek them out. Now I want to pause for a moment and remember back to what he stated at the beginning or what we stated at the beginning. Okay, going back to Romans 15, this whole idea of individualistic Christianity, approaching the scriptures only for ourselves. As Christians, we don't want to be individualistic, seeing redemption only for ourselves, but we want to see the wide scope of God's mercy and compassion. It's not just narrowed down to you, but it's it's wide and deep. And that begins to take shape as Jesus is proclaiming to Israel in Matthew and he's proclaiming the gospel to Israel, not just to 21st century people. We have to understand the gospel is as the gospel, the New Testament gospel has been working for over 2000 years. How marvelous, how great is the grace of God that it has gone for 2000 years, not just today. Matthew will capture this in 10, and that's why we read into 10 today, and we're going to talk more about it as we go on. He captures this in such a beautiful way, the compassion and mercy of God, not just being for us. Uh, he's not saying that. But as Jesus sends out his disciples to do, um, to do what he's been doing, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, right? And this is what Jesus tells his disciples after he... We see that he sees the crowds harassed and helpless like sheep without shepherds. He tells his disciples, go nowhere among the Gentiles. What's a Gentile? Not an Israelite. Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans. What's a Samaritan? Half an Israelite. Okay. Not, not, not a, 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 a full son of Abraham. We could talk about that another time. But he says, but go rather, look at this, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And proclaim as you go, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know, I'm not just going to assume you see the overlap here. The lost sheep of Israel... Ezekiel 34, I will go and seek and find them. I will go and find my lost sheep. They're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Go, go, send out laborers into the fields. Luke records of Jesus and Zacchaeus. You know, Zacchaeus was a wee little man and he's in the sycamore tree and he sees he sees Jesus and he wants he wants to see him, so he climbs up in the tree. Jesus knows he's there, tells him to come down, and 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 and, and Jesus. Or I'm sorry. And Zacchaeus confesses his sin, and this is what Jesus says to him. And Jesus said to him, 
Today salvation has come to this house, Zacchaeus, since he also is a son of Abraham. What is Zacchaeus? He's a lost sheep of the house of Israel. He's a direct He's directly affected by the shepherds who did not shepherd Israel. He is a lost sheep of the house of Israel. You don't believe me? Jesus then says this. And I hope this changes your way of hearing this for the rest of your life. After he says that Zacchaeus is a son of Abraham, he says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. The lost sheep of Israel. What do we see here? What is his response? Jesus' response to seeing the conditions of the crowd? Compassion. The compassion of Christ. The compassion of the triune God. Here's what I want you to understand. This moment in Matthew 9 is not arbitrary. It's not random. It's not a coincidence. What is taking place in Matthew 9 is the divine and purposeful compassion of God made known through the sending of His Son for not just a harassed and helpless people, but an adulterous people. If you want, if you as a Gentile want to want a taste of the loving compassion of God, look at His mercy towards Israel. You cannot know fully. I don't think you can know fully the compassion and mercy and grace of God if you approach those very things with a me-centered attitude. Because that's not what God did. God came to save His people from their sins. God came to save the world, the Lamb of God. If you want to better understand God's grace towards you, see His long-suffering towards Israel. And what does that mean? I could read the Old Testament. Study the Old Testament. And you will greater know the grace of God towards you. The Old Testament is continually showing us Israel's unwillingness and inability to what? Keep covenant with God. The scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures paint the picture that Israel just isn't an unfaithful wife, but a prostitute. But yet, even in their unfaithfulness, God remained faithful. Psalm 74 plays this out over and over again in 72 verses. But it can be summarized with these few verses. Hear this. Please hear this. Psalm 78. The heart, excuse me, their heart, that would be Israel's heart, was not steadfast towards him, towards Yahweh. They were not faithful to his covenant. Yet he, God, 
being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered, get this, he remembered that they, Israel, were but flesh. A wind that passes and comes not again. There is the compassion of the triune God towards his people. And what does it take for him? He remembered that they were weak. He remembered, but they are but flesh. Wind that passes and comes not again. This ought to stir in your mind Hebrews. Which is very much the Old Testament written in the New Testament. It ought to stir up before the throne of God above. You have a great high priest. And we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God. We have a great high priest. We do not have a great high priest who is unable, watch these words, to sympathize with our weaknesses. As, and through him, we can confidently draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and grace in time of need. If you do a word study of that, of that passage and you look at the word sympathy and mercy, in that definition, you will find the word compassion. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That God would clothe himself in flesh and become the shepherd of the sheep of the house of Israel. The end of Ezekiel 34, or verse 23 and 24, the gospel is clear. And I will set up over them one shepherd... My servant David. How did, how did Matthew start his gospel? Jesus Christ, the son of David. I will set up over them one... My, David's in the ground. You know that at this point. He's dead. I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them and he shall feed them and be their shepherd And I, the Lord Yahweh, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince, there's you a leader, among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. The compassion of God as he gives his people, he gives his flock, what? A good shepherd. A great king. A compassionate leader. That's the gospel of the kingdom. Matthew 9, we see this. We see this unfolding. The good shepherd of the sheep sees the condition of his flock. And he takes to action. How does he take to action? Well, we're done with Ezekiel. Matthew 9, how does he take to action? He doesn't just see them and acknowledge their condition. But then he says, we need to go and get them. Verse 37, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out the laborers into the harvest. And what does he do in chapter 10? He sends them out. Verse 5 of chapter 10, these 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, 
but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. and Proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Time to go and recover the lost sheep. For there are many, and therefore the harvest is plentiful. He calls his disciples to pray that they might find the harvest, that they as laborers will go and work. That is, as they go and proclaim the same gospel that Jesus is proclaiming. And that is that their shepherd has arrived. But the compassion of Jesus, of God, does not stop there. He doesn't just call them and preach to them, but he does die for them. Because apart from that, he cannot be their shepherd. Let's finish by going to John 10. Almost done. Verse 11. You know this passage well, but hopefully you see it in a different light. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I know my own and my own knows me. Yes, you Zacchaeus, Peter, Matthew, Mary Magdalene. He calls them. He knows them. And they follow because they know him when they hear his voice. And he tells them that he will lay down his life for them, for the sheep. We must realize also and understand that the crowd's condition Israel's condition, Israel's greatest problem was not that they were scattered physically or that they were harassed physically, but they were scattering and wandering from their God. They lived in around the temple of Jerusalem, but they were scattered, harassed. Their hearts were far from God. They lacked faith. The language of Psalm 78, which we read earlier, says this about Israel. Rebelled against him, grieved him, tested him, provoked him, did not remember him. He came as their great shepherd, as Matthew says, to save his people from their sins. He came to them as the leader who would not take their lives for his sake as the old bad shepherds did in Ezekiel 34. But he came as the shepherd to give his life. For their sake. And how effective as we finish is this compassionate leader of the house of Israel. Well, John tells us, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. 
They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. His effectiveness is eternal, perfect, and complete. And let's bring this full circle. We began by Romans 15. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Well, I want you to understand that as Paul continues there in Romans 15, when he gets to verse 8, he is speaking about God's compassion and mercy towards Israel and how it ought to make us, the Gentiles, glorify God. For I tell you, that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, that would be the Jew, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. Again, that word mercy is so closely tied to compassion. Paul teaches us to look to the truthfulness, the faithfulness of God towards Israel, and then rejoice and glorify God for His mercy towards them is also towards us. The same mercy that saves us from our sins. Jesus is the compassionate leader, the good shepherd, not just to the house of Israel, but not less than that, but to the world, to the Gentiles, to you and I, to the nations. That's why Jesus says He comes to save The world. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He has come to save His people from their sins. And the effectiveness of the Good Shepherd towards Israel, the compassionate leader, extends beyond Israel to all of the children of God who are children, I'm sorry, to the children of Abraham, those who have faith. So today, oh, let me not forget. As the good shepherd knows his sheep and the sheep knows him, he also makes this declaration. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. That's us. And that same shepherd has the same hold on us that he has on the lost sheep of Israel. So today we have hope, joy, and peace because we are sheep in the flock of God, shepherded by the good shepherd, the Son of God. We will not perish because no one will snatch them out of our shepherd's hand. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness and truthfulness and mercy to the house of Israel. And thank you for pouring out your love upon us, us heathen Gentiles. And thank you That you are our shepherd. You are our leader. And we will follow you. Because you know us and we know you. 
In Jesus' name, amen.